This recording was brought to you by Media One Audio Visual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com. Hi, thanks very much for coming. Sorry, a little startling. I'm Dave Costner from Council LLP, and I'm, I'm honored to have um, some of the leaders of the most compelling companies in the publishing space here with us tonight or today. Uh, on the end is Richard Conlin, who's the uh, Senior Vice President of Corporate... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Justin Kalifowitz, uh, founder of Song Trust and the president of Downtown Music Publishing. Uh, Richard Conlin, uh, the senior vice president of corporate strategy and communications and new media at BMI. And then John Rudolph, the CEO of Bug Music. Um, just to quickly to start off, could we get a sense of who's in the audience? Uh, technologists, writers, musicians, technologists? All right, writers, musicians, so sort of a evenish split. Well, publishing is really interesting because it's it's somewhat arcane, um, often overlooked, and I think maybe the main or a main source of revenue for songwriters, independent major, uh, you name it. Um, it has been hurt, or we'll say affected, by the uh, by piracy, certainly. Uh, but then there are other avenues that have opened up that may be valuable. You know, we're going to find out from our panelists. Um, and new strategies by which to administer works and collect and track and uh, basically increase the value of, of publishing. Um, for those who don't know, if we're talking about music, if we're talking about a CD, uh, the, there are two copyrights involved. There's the copyright to the recording and then the copyright to the underlying composition, which is the words, the music. Uh, and actually something that, that John pointed out, it all starts with the composition. Um, you can have a recording, but the recording is effectively a derivative work of a composition that had been written and, and, and is presumably played uh, onto some sort of a medium which becomes the recording. Um, and it's, it's I mean, we could argue about the root of value, but I think that songs really communicate emotion uh, in a powerful way. And um, it's a deeper business than I think most people give it credit for initially. So it's creative and uh, economic. <laughs> but you know, I'm just going to go down the line, and, and we'll start with John. He could talk about um, his work, his company, and um, where they're going. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, I'm John Rudolph from Bug Music. We're, I would say, the largest independent music publisher in a, certainly North America, if not the world. After the four majors, we uh, just to give you kind of some data points of the breadth of our catalog, we published Bruno Mars, Kings and Leon, all the way to Johnny Cash, Muddy Waters. So a little bit of everything between. We've got eight offices across the world and also partners in every major territory of the world. Uh, look forward to talking with everybody today because I think you know, we, Justin and I were talking about this earlier, we like nothing better than talking to people who like to license our music. So, um, Richard. Thanks, John. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Richard Conlin from BMI, and uh, we represent the public performing right for songwriters and music publishers. We represent um, about half of the copyright interests that you hear on American radio, just to put some scope around that. About uh, 500,000 songwriters and publishers and about 7 million musical works. Hi, I'm Justin Klifowitz from Downtown Music Publishing and co-founder of a new company called Song Trust. 
Uh, Downtown Music Publishing was started in 2007, so we're the newest company up here. Um, we started as a division of Downtown Records, uh, which launched in 2006 with artists like Cold War Kids and Gnarls Barkley. And um, we're now a full-service music publisher. We look after about 20,000 copyrights, uh, catalogs like Motley Crue, Seal, uh, Trevor Horn, The Pogues, things of that nature. Uh, contemporary pop and R&B writers who've written for Katy Perry and Bruno Mars. Um, we also started a business called Song Trust uh, in January of this year. We launched publicly. Uh, we've been working on it for about a year, and it's a music publishing administration platform uh, for songwriters and artists at all levels. And um, unlike traditional publishing deals that uh, I've been doing for uh, the past 10 years and John's been doing throughout his career, it's a business that um, is, is open to any and all songwriters who are interested in having their copyrights more professionally managed. Uh, there's no bar, there's no signing, it's a... <laughs> um, not my song. Yeah, That's, that wasn't mine either. Um, yeah, it's an open platform for uh, for songwriters and artists of all levels to come and manage their copyrights. Great, great. You know, just to start, John mentioned something. Uh, well, when we were talking upstairs, and I think this is pretty germane to uh, to the technologists here or people looking to license works, since the uh, the publishing being the words and music, um, you can have many versions of the same song. It's not necessarily the master you hear on the radio um, and that the, uh, the major label wants a big advance for. But John, maybe, maybe you could talk about other ways that um, compositions can be used as opposed to being embodied into a popular recording, as it were. Well, <clears throat> I mean, now it seems like there's a million ways. It's interesting in being at this panel before on lyrics and how lyrics are searched and used now uh, more so it seems like uh, than ever and the availability is one of the issues that we have there of course is also piracy lyrics as it is and everything else but it's been pretty interesting for us in because we don't have a record company attached to us we do own some masters but for the most part all we are is a music publisher we have partnerships with with recorded master companies to give you an example we own a song called fever that a lot of hopefully you've heard before Peggy Lee did kind of the definitive version of that song but there's over 600 licensed versions of that song that you may have heard some here there Beyonce had a famous one last year it was in a commercial for example and there are a lot of other places to go for including some folks who have aggregated uh, songs so if you're doing something on a on a say a video game side or something where the you need certain things and it's coming up more and more as folks are looking for sessions or stems however you want to refer to it um, whether it's for mixes there's companies who actually have those um, whereas in some cases the record companies can't find them um, and so that's kind of starting to become interesting for us because those folks have approached us and said hey if you're going to license a song you should also uh, license a master from us or, or uh, you know introduce us to the folks that you're licensing it for the reason that's interesting to us is because Again, for the most part, we do have restrictions when it comes to our writers, but for the most part, we're very interested in licensing music. Music publishers have always come from that position. I shouldn't say always. The original version of, of why it's called music publishing was because the publishers actually physically published music. And so the whole idea of licensing music is something that the publishers have been doing for at least the last 60 to 70 years, um, where the record companies in the last 10 to 20 have really started to catch up with that. Um, 
so again, I would say it, it, there's a lot, you get a lot of requests. We have some criteria I think we're going to talk about around how we think about who we should and should be licensing to, but um, we're very much interested in, in talking with folks. Cool. Actually, um, maybe talking about that, what, uh, well, maybe save that to later for, a more tech, <laughs> for the investment portion. Um, Justin, is that something you look at with, with downtown music and downtown, uh, well, you get a record company and then the sure. publishing. Do you look at ways of combining the two or do you yeah. exploit the publishing as separate from the... Well, we know we run our, our record business completely separate from our publishing business. However, um, what the publishing business does do is is look after third-party licensing for the record company. So any type of sync licensing, any uses that don't sort of fall through the traditional um, distribution networks, our publishing team actually handles the licensing for that on behalf of Downtown Records. We also do it on behalf of about 30 other independent record companies, including Cooking Vinyl, 11.7. Um, and a handful of others, and it's it's an it's an interesting part of the business because you know one of the things that a lot of people who want to use music have a very difficult time understanding is you know I have to go to two people for that I have to go to a record company and a publishing company for that, and one of the things we try to do as as John does is is put both sides of the copyright back together uh, when people are coming to us and trying to actually get licenses for our songs we try to make it as easy as possible. Um, oftentimes we hear nightmare stories of. We, you know, tried to, we want to pay you for this, but we can't find a master recording. So, you know, we're scrapping to find a master recording. It's an alternative recording. Um, it's a cover version where we know the, the record company is easy to license. Um, we've had our own writers and producers go into the studios to create things. Of course, you know, these, these methods don't scale, but they do help in these individual uses. So, I mean, for us, across the board, the, the priority of what we try to do is make the licensing process as easy as possible. But, but as John hinted at, and, and it's something that we all deal with, is that um, we represent, in a lot of cases, we manage and represent these, these copyrights on behalf of creative folks who, in their deals, they want to all say they want final approval and they oftentimes do and and um, we have to kind of abide by those wishes so I think when a lot of times people get frustrated with the music publishing industry and publishers uh, a lot of times they, they the, the folks on the other side don't recognize that what we're doing is speaking on behalf of the artists who oftentimes want to do X Y and Z or don't want to license their music for X Y and Z I think the tr the way in which publishers are reacting today versus you know 10 15 years ago is um, you see, you know, Bob Dylan appearing in a Victoria's Secret commercial. So the idea of like exploiting your music has has changed. Obviously, you know, we always talk uh, those that concept gets talked about at a lot of these panels and the way in which it's now comfortable. And I think that um, there's a whole group of artists now who just want their music exposed in as many ways as possible. So one of the things we're trying to do is also create um, pre-cleared versions. So going to writers instead of saying we have to come to you for approval for all of this. Uh, saying what don't we need to come to you for approval on and then sort of framing the way in which we go out and deal with third parties in that in that light and say actually we've already pre-cleared these all of these rights on, be on behalf of you know 5,000 copyrights or 10,000 copyrights and, and again does that solve for the problem for folks you know, in the audience in the building you know on in this state who are trying to create you know free tunes and other things like that uh, it doesn't necessarily solve for that, but it does help um, along the way, and it is a process in terms of how we manage these rights on behalf of our of our clients. How, m how many lawyers besides Dave are, are in the room? I can tell you, I've never had a lawyer come back to me and say, you know, I'd like to uh, give you this piece of paper that that gets rid of the section where our, you where our, you have to come to me or the the writer for approvals, <laughs> and um, and that's not in this day and age, that's not a good thing. 
because what happens is, I know this happens with the majors, and, and it gets to a point where everybody knows what can you clear quickly because a show's on, you know, One Tree Hill's on the phone at 6.30 on Friday night going, I gotta clear this song because it's going in and to editing, or there's something happening on a mass level where somebody wants to license your entire catalog and you have to carve out pieces of it because you don't have approvals from all those folks. So it's, there are evolutions and people are starting to get that um, because it, there are things that we do agree with, um, and this is to the frustrations that everybody has. It's kind of interesting because until just, you know, really in the last 10 years, our world has been about licensing either uh, really on a series of one-offs for a particular album or for a particular recording or for a synchronization use. Uh, we did do uh, lyric licenses before, but now we're having these blanket licenses where particular uses are coming in, and we've had traditional things, as everybody knows, you know, political ads, cigarettes, guns, all those things. But now um, it's changed, and people there was a period where they didn't want their stuff used, and now they do want it used, and um, and they call us up and say, well, why is why am I not included in this? I know you did the rest of them. We said, well, because you're you asked for approval rights on it and they needed it and so you don't get it. So the positives are starting to happen to bring, to try to take a lot of that frustration level that the publishers have been dealing with for you know really the last 40 years, as much kind of mitigating it uh, as much as possible to, to allow the technology to, to use the music. Richard, what would you uh, say about the new technology and income and how BMI is capturing it or taking advantage of uh opportunities well, I, I think there are a couple there are a couple of points the first is to even to put a finer point on publishing um, I think in publishing we're not in the record business we're truly in the music business it doesn't matter where the music ends up if it's a video game or a television program or made for web or anything or anywhere it's really the broadest the broadest base for exploitation and I think that's that's part of what makes it so um, interesting and makes I think the business proposition so compelling so we're not really we're not really pigeoned into any one particular business model. Um, I think another point that, you know, to follow up on what John was saying is that um, you have to make it easy for people to get to rights. And um, the, uh, the, the, the marketplace itself will use any um, excuse, whether manufactured or real, and there are both of them, um, to say, well, this is a pain in the neck and these guys stink and we should legislate this or we should regulate that or we should pull the prices down. So I think that um, one of the things that um, has worked for us since we started is a blanket license where you say, here you go, I'm gonna do a deal with you guys. You have, we have the rights for all exploitations and we're gonna license whatever the field of use is and it's gonna be the whole repertoire. It's gonna be seven million musical works and there you go and you're done. Um, so I think that as we move forward and particularly in digital where you start to see the rights start to combine, it's important to make it easy um, to get to them. First, easy to get to them here, and then secondly, to think about making it easy to get to global rights. So um, I think those are um, you know, two of the, you know, just a couple of dynamics that are flying around. Um, in terms of digital, we've been at this uh, a very, very long time, uh, almost 15 years. In fact, um, you used to be able to set your clock by the, uh, the angry phone calls we would get from other members of the industry when we would do another deal about, you're what? Um, but I think that um, it's, I think we have great use and I think that we have um, decent growth, but I think that we have so far poor monetization. I mean, the whole thing is that digital's happening, there's lots of it, there's, there's you know, we have a big source could use 800,000 titles in a quarter. I mean, think about that as a, compared to a, 
168 hour radio station programming week and a couple of hundred titles in rotation on a big radio station. So I think our experience has been good to get the rights out there, good to get some money flowing. And I think we're at a point now where we're all thinking about, well, gee, what's, what really is the value of um, providing 800,000 copyright clearances to one entity in one time? So I think the valuation isn't where we want it to be by a long shot yet. Mm -hmm. I think we've turned the spigot on, but it's um, it's kind of stuck in low right now. Yeah, you'd mentioned that <clears throat> the new revenue or new technology revenue streams maybe five percent of your total. Yeah, uh, and that may have uh, replaced twenty to thirty percent from you know of revenue back in the day when things were all broadcast. I, I think from the whole pie, one of the wild things, and again, this is the really cool thing of publishing, is if you're in live venues and you're in sports arenas and you're in cable and you're in network and so forth. Um, Songwriters have been fortunate, certainly on the performance side, not on the mechanical side, because that has been hit, but on the performance side by the fact that the, the, the revenue portfolio didn't dip. And it's pretty remarkable if you, you know, half of your revenue had a 30% loss and you, and you maintain an even keel. It's a pretty um, fortunate situation. Mm -hmm. um, so so we're, 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 seeing it, uh, we're seeing it even. I think the big thing for us is as you grow against maturing industries, radio, TV, cable, um, general licensing and restaurants and bars and so forth. When you look at year over year total growth, digital is, is driving that delta. Um, it's again, 5% 5 of revenue may be generating 50% of year over year growth. Mm -hmm. And that's the good thing on the performance side, but that's not the whole picture. Right. Yeah, before we kind of go on with that topic, I do want to say one other thing, and I'm going to make a gross generalization, so if you, you can misquote me because I'm misquoting myself. <laughs> the um, Songwriting is the only artwork that is regulated by the government. If somebody else can tell me anything else, I, I'd love to hear it, and I'll add it to my Obscenity. repertoire. You know? <laughs> but uh, it's, I mean, if you think about it, on one hand, we're having, you know, there's a big push this is older than the technology argument, but you know, technology would like it to kind of all go into a bundle and just be nice yeah. and easy and clean, um, both from the performance right side, which is under consent decrees um, for ASCAP and BMI. On the mechanical right side, it's set by statute, and that's you know, and there's a push now for that um, to extend into. There are some already, but even the multiple new uh, business models, and so. On one hand, as running a business, I think to myself, well, that's great. But on the other hand, as a fan of music, I always have a big problem with it because shouldn't people want to give their music away for free? Great, which they can kind of do, but there's no in-between. There's no, you know, it's set. And so it turns into a very expensive process of trying to figure out what that is. Um, I'm by no means uh, advocating for there not being, the, you know, these ideas. But at the same time, it's understand that the frustrations that folks might have around trying to license these rights aren't just as simple as a publisher or a performance society saying here you know there's a lot of other factors that go into it unfortunately whenever you involve the government to me it never really turns out great but actually on on that talking about um licensing for you know technology companies who are trying to put together catalogs what are the things that you and this would be justin or john you look at um, when you decide to license your, your catalog to a new technology company, of which there are many? Uh, you know, it, it, it depends on sort of where, you know, it, it's like a lot of ways in which we're very, on the one hand, want to be sort of open to every sort of new idea that comes into the pike. But, you know, uh, John and I were talking about this earlier, if we spent all day 
just reviewing nonstop the, the new opportunities that come through, uh, we couldn't handle the rest of the business. That's not to say that we don't completely recognize that this is absolutely where things are going um, and where they're at in many cases in terms of consumption. Uh, but one of the things we, we look at is, you know, who's involved, who's backing this idea? Is it really going to go off the ground? Because, I mean, it's we're literally inundated, even for our small catalog with 20,000 titles, with dozens of inquiries every week to please let us experiment with your music or please let us use your music for free for, the, you know, this period of time to try out our new business model, which is going to result in X, Y, Z for you. And, uh, you know, we look at those opportunities and, you know, see who, who else who else is backing it who else is involved what is the viability of it of it taking off and you know who else in the industry has kind of signed on and, and consulting with other publishers and that's one of the things that publishers do is they talk to each other and they find out if other folks are into it and I mean a, a, a critical thing for me is coming in with a sound you know business plan that that shows that this is a, not an opportunity for us to you know maybe make a couple of pennies and eventually take away from some other revenue stream that we had but this is a real solid way forward for us as, as for our copyrights which were you know in, in effect oftentimes hired to protect I mean we're really on some level you know to be kind of cold about it we're like venture capital at the end of the day um, they're we're gonna vet riders that's what we do we look at them we see you know what we think what their potential is just like if a uh, entrepreneur uh, walked into a financing source and said whether it's private equity a bank or venture capitalist and said I have this great idea and this is what I think I can create and I've created this prototype our version of a prototype would be a songwriter working it walking in with a demo um, it's really kind of in parallel and so that risk equation, that idea that goes on, you know, if you can think about it uh, from, from our perspective, then that development, those songs are, are like currency. And so the idea of just giving those songs away um, isn't really something that we're that interested in. Now, having said that, we're, you know, we look at it from the standpoint of, same as what Justin was saying, if there's really compelling ideas, and usually it's not going to be that you're going to make you know X amount of dollars, and you're going to see you know we're going to tap into this new market. I don't think it's a matter of a new market as much as it is moving users from one market to the other. And the and one of the other big considerations that we look at is are you cannibalizing an existing market already? Now, you can say music wants to be free and all those arguments, and that's great. But I can tell you this that uh, I don't know any songwriters who want music to be free who are trying to make a living and want to eat. Um, I know it sounds a little dramatic and old and everything else. It's just not. It's just the realities. And so, same with any developer or coder I've ever met. I actually ran a startup up here from 2000, 2001, and it was kind of this, you know, the same thing. We all really enjoyed it in, until we had to pay rent and eat. And um, so it's a little bit of that same parallel. Now, I will say this, too, that we have gone and looked at companies we just thought were really cool. And one of those that was uh, Tap Tap Revenge before they did their deal with Disney. And we, if you go to the, I think the version that when the iPad came out, they gave a free version away, if you remember one of the apps. We had one of our bands, I think the entire album was on there actually, called the Features, that we controlled the master and the publishing side 100% for. Because we love the game and we understood that to be a, a marketing uh, element more so, because you could play the game, push through and buy the single and it worked. So we don't, we're not just one-dimensional, how much are you going to pay me? We're not like, I mean, there's no majors in this room, I don't think, so I can just say this. You know, we're like, how big is the advance? 
uh, we like that too. But more so what we're interested in is how do you grow the pie? How do you protect the pie and how do you grow it? Because the commodity element, you okay, Dave? I just want to make sure I'm not dominated. You know, oh, yeah. the, <laughs> but the commodity, what happens, the commoditization of music is driving the price down because we heard this in the lyrics forum earlier, and it's the truth. As everybody's basically trying to create a model and fighting, it comes down to pricing, which is basically how much is a consumer willing to pay you or whoever for the music and for the technology. And as that starts to happen, what ultimately happens is all the money gets smaller for everybody. And if that happens, what happens is the creators then get less money and there'll be less, in my opinion, less professional quality. We've seen it already happen. In particular, it's happened in Nashville, I think worse than anywhere else. But it is part of a bigger pie. And you got in the technology groups, companies, startups, your entrepreneurs are part of that pie. If you're interested in music, you're part of it. Richard, you were talking about um, just the, the broadcast streams maybe shrinking a bit and the new technology streams. You mentioned upstairs you have now a program where bands can fax in their set list and register their live performance plays. A lot of people don't realize, of course, anywhere you perform your songs live, a blanket license should be obtained and you should get paid for that. This is a, maybe can Richard can explain, just a, a more direct way of getting paid for everyday bands. Yeah, I mean, to put some, some context around that, that program, um, one of the things that, that, that we've had happen in our company is that we've quadrupled in size in the last 14, 15 years. Or we, in the last 10 years, we've doubled the number of writers. Last year, we signed 45,000 new writers, most of whom are aspirational, most of whom will probably never generate a lot of, of, of market share. But we have a volume challenge. Out of those 45,000, there are going to be some winners. And we've been tracking our online affiliations for five years. And there are some winners that are coming out of this. But one of the challenges that you have as an organization that, like, like everyone else, 50 years ago used to be a bricks and mortar organization, is virtualizing the company and offering service that doesn't have to attach to a human being. I was speaking with a woman from, uh, a classmate from Annenberg, there, there she is, uh, where we went to school, um, the same school in Los Angeles. And at the time, Diffusion of Innovation was about the ATM machine, replacing tellers with machines that spit out money. And one of our professors was the guy that did this whole um, work on how people would get used to dealing with an ATM. Well, um, in, the, in, in our business, providing virtualized services is a big deal. And it's something that's the only way we can serve um, this base of 500,000 writers and publishers. So you see lots of writers, lots of publishers, lots of catalog, lots of use, lots of venues. Uh, we put together a program that we launched in January. Um, we launched it online called BMI Live, which says if you're a writer and you're touring and you're performing and you're going to these small venues, they're venues that might be paying us $400 a year, might be paying us $1,000 a year, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Um, but they're not venues that we could afford to monitor because we'll spend $1,000 giving away your 300 back to you. So we put together a program initially online that said, when you go into these venues, just log on and give us the venue name and your set list and the date you played. It'll go into our distribution system and we'll affect a distribution using this data that's self-reported um, by the writer with a verification layer to it as well. Um, and writers started saying like, wow, you know what, maybe this will, as we were speaking uh, upstairs, maybe this will generate some gas money. Um, what's important about it is, is though it's starting to generate, it's starting to create a real commerce, a real ecosystem. Um, about a week ago, I think it was about a week ago, we just launched um, a mobile version in uh, the App Store. So you can go into your 
iPhone and you can put in your set list and this I was in this venue and these performances will upload and you don't uh, you know you don't have monkeys behind the screens taking them out and printing them and putting them in they flow into a system and they can be efficiently and effectively uh, distributed then so what it, it's it's part of for us a whole wave of new service um, where you virtualize what you used to be able to do with handshakes and meetings um, so you can still provide a level of service to the the up-and-coming writer and even to the mid-level writer who says I want to access my catalog or get a um, get a revenue projection or I want to do certain things it's really adding a new layer of, of service for the writer community and the publisher community you guys were talking about um, the commoditization of, of songs and maybe the race to the bottom um, one of the price-wise. <laughs> One of the saving graces, I think, for a lot of independent musicians has been syncing. And the mm -hmm. fact that TV shows uh, in the, the you know, late 90s aughts really moved music into, uh, you know, into the lifestyle of the show. Uh, are you seeing the fact that more artists and, and writers are leaning on sync royalties um, or sync uh, uh, fees, basically? Uh, do you see the fees dropping because the demand's so high and the supply remains effectively the same? Or are you seeing the emergence of new webcasts or other uh, cable shows as bringing up the, the demand such that people can still command a fair amount for a sync license? Um, I think the volume has certainly increased, uh, whereas they used to you know, add, especially in brands, you know, brands would license a song for a global Coca-Cola campaign, and now they're um, you know, they're doing one for television in this region, another for television in this region, um, 15 different versions for the web. Um, TV shows as well, they're not only licensing for the show, but webisodes and um, things in between and, and uh, behind the scenes and the same thing. So the, the volume of uses has certainly increased. I think, you know, the, 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 because of the volume going up, um, the amount of bands being interested in licensing their music, which has changed. Uh, I think over the past decade, certainly, there's the, the mood, as we discussed earlier, has changed in terms of where tying your music to a product or a film or a TV show is not seen as a negative, but actually as a positive. Um, when I meet with new bands now, the first question they ask is, you know, how, how the first question they ask, and one of the big differentiators for publishers is, you know, how good are you at placing music in film, TV, and advertising? And that's a critical issue that every band wants to know, and you have to point to a track record, I think, these days to, when, when you're dealing with um, competitive scenarios to, to sign new bands. Um, but in terms of the fees going down, uh, I think so. I think so across the board they've gone down. Um, not tremendously, but, but they have. You also have a tremendous number of people who are interested in licensing their music for free, just for the exposure. Because you know, the dream used to be to get a record deal, and now the dream is to get an iPad commercial. So um, if, with that being the case, and that mentality, it just, of course, pushes the price down. But I think for, for certain copyrights, you know, we, we look after Motley Crue, and, and when we license you know, Home Sweet Home or Girls, 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 you know, there's there's a price, you know, and that's not gonna, at least as far as I'm concerned, ever gonna be free. Um, and and I think that you know, you you look at certain songs that can completely change the complexion of a campaign. They can completely change the the mood of a film or a TV show. And certain directors absolutely have to have them. Uh, budget restrictions, though, you know, as they go down, of course, change that. And then producers, you know, tell the directors, we're sorry. It's either we cut that big crash scene or we license that Beatles track. So, you know, pick one. And inevitably, music is, 
is uh, has oftentimes been sort of the first thing to get cut and you know usually the last thing to get thought of as well. Um, but but that being said, sync has become uh, it, it drives interest in the band, in the in the artist, the song. Most importantly for us, uh, you know, we had a we published a band called Neon Trees, and uh, we sold about million and change singles on iTunes and had many 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 more um, free streams on the web. Um, and uh, they had a song performed on Glee, and now we just hit two million this week in terms of downloads, and not the Glee version. The Glee version did well, sold 100 and changed 1,000, but it pushed such tremendous interest in the original copyright that it's okay. And they paid us for the use, which is great. You know, Glee's been a, a fantastic way of introducing um, um, songs to mainstream America, I think. Uh, and, and that's really kind of the, the dream for a lot of folks is to, is to find those types of opportunities. And for us as publishers, it's, it's to manage, you know, uh, the ability for these copyrights to grow in prominence uh, in line with the interest of the writer. Now, I would say that on the high end, the, you know, the, the big copyrights for us, What a Wonderful World, Fever, things like that, the pricing hasn't changed that much. Uh, I would say on the lower end, there's more competition. So for new bands, uh, there's quite a bit more competition. Yeah, that makes sense. Richard, on the um, the collection side, just so I, this is actually I guess, something that came up <laughs> within our office, but people understand, especially webcasters uh, who want to get blanket licenses, when they license something from you, they get the rights to your members, but also the rights of the members of all of your affiliates throughout the world. Is that the way it works? They can have a one-stop with you, or do they have to go to each affiliate around the world to get their memberships rights. Well, that's uh, there no no short stories in this business, I'm afraid. Well, right now it is a domestic US and territories license, um, despite the fact that we're licensing a global medium. Um, so right now the way that it works is it's anything that BMI has sort of local native, you know, US BMI repertoire plus all of the affiliated repertoire that we represent from international societies. Uh, we did we did an experiment a few years ago, which created a bit of a hubbub in the EU, where we tried to put together virtual trading territories, where we could pull um, every, all all the repertoire that BMI represented, plus our foreign repertoire that we represented in the U.S. And we did a series of bilateral agreements, so we could do basically world license, not not total world, but basically everywhere there was any money in the world, mm -hmm. um, a license that covered those territories. Um, that worked really well in concept. Um, but uh, the EU didn't think it was too swell, <laughs> and um, they're still talking about it. It's like 10 years later, but any, anyway, right, that will fix itself. I had mentioned globalism earlier, but right now, if you sign a, a webcasting license or a, a digital property license with BMI, it's explicitly for BMI-represented rights and only U.S. and territories. Got it. Got it. And, um, well, Justin, um, you're doing this as part of uh, Song Trust. Maybe you could spell out all the different organizations that you register on behalf of your clients that people should know about and be thinking about registering anyway. Yeah. Uh, that might, maybe they want to go to you to do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you guys a, a brief background on Song Trust. I mean, basically, so I've been in music publishing for, for 10 years, and there's a lot of bands that I've wanted to sign for various reasons. You know, the economics of publishing deals are generally, as John was mentioning earlier, you know, you, you take a risk, you, you give an advance to a band, you acquire an ownership interest, or sometimes you just get a management fee for looking after it, and you get a percentage of the back-end royalties and you hope for success, or you, you help contribute to that success. Um, but you get those rights through an investment. And what's happened over the past decade with sort of the DIY or emerging artists that you know, Richard mentions are signing up with BMI and they're signing up with ASCAP is that 
though there's been an unbelievable amount of innovation in every other aspect of the music business of being able to do it yourself from distribution to fan list management. I mean, you know, most of the companies that are in this building, frankly, today, uh, they're offering some amazing services. But in publishing, there really hasn't been anyone to say, hey, this is a tool you can use to help manage your song copyrights. Um, so we decided to go out and look at the publishing model and the existing publishing business models and say, is there a way to change this? Is there a way to offer a service that uh, affords equal access to songwriters um, to get onto the licensing grid? And we all talk about these blanket licenses that license all the music out there and um, you know, that, that organizations give. And then you find out that, well, actually, all of those, a lot of those DIY and emerging artists are not on these licensing grids. So where does all their money go? And you know, for is it millions of dollars? Is it worth the trouble of a major publisher to do individual deals with all these individual folks? No, not necessarily. Um, but there are a lot of folks out there who are owed, you know, in the hundreds and the thousands of dollars. There's a lot of folks out there who just want to protect their copyrights. They just want, you know, is there a way to more easily facilitate U.S. copyright registration? Um, is there a way that they can just go do everything that a publisher would do and just maybe pay a monthly fee? And that's what where SongTrust was born out of. So some of the things that we do is um, first help people affiliate with a performing rights organization. Uh, everyone always says, oh, you can do that yourself. You can, but I, I've, almost every emerging artist I've ever signed has not yet affiliated with a PRO after months and months and years of, of being a band and, and generating performances that would have otherwise garnered them royalties. But it, they're in a band. They're not business folks, and they didn't think to affiliate with a performing rights organization. Um, so that's one of the first things that we help them with. We register their songs there um, with the Harry Fox Agency, uh, with Rights Flow. If you're selling your music abroad, we'll register you with collection societies um, you know, in Canada, the UK, France, Germany, anywhere where your music uh, is being performed or sold, we will register your songs. You let us know. Um, you know, one of the things we're looking at is you know, we offer two packages right now, and, and one of them is a more basic package for folks who are just getting out there. Uh, we're going to offer an even more basic package, which is just facilitating US copyright registration for folks who just want that bit. Um, and there's going to be a more comprehensive package for lawyers and managers who are looking, who, who already are managing uh, these copyrights on behalf of emerging <coughs> artists, but want a tool to help them facilitate that. Because right now, one of the only tools available um, you know, is an expensive piece of software that, that most independent publishers use, um, which is great, but it's not a, exactly a forward consumer-facing product. Uh, so with Songtrust, really what we're trying to do, and, and this is a big deal to me, is to really level the playing field and allow any artist to get onto the licensing grid um, and collect their fair share. So you'll collect foreign mechanicals as well, Correct. By, which is a real... Button. Yeah, it's a real pain. I mean, this is one thing that people oftentimes... So in the U.S., we, um, we just think it's very unique in the fact that you know our, our collection societies are, uh, are very different here than they are outside. Um, outside of the U.S., most collection societies are, are affiliated in some way between mechanicals and performance under the same umbrella, uh, like GEMA in Germany, SASM in France. Um, the, what was formerly the MCPS and the PRS then became the MCPS-PRS Alliance and is now just PRS for Music, uh, where they're doing mechanical and performance under one roof. In the U.S., um, you know, BMI does performance. Uh, Harry Fox is one way to collect mechanical royalties, but you can also go direct. Um, or use other smaller agencies to do that on your behalf. So one of the things that we do outside of the U.S. is uh, affiliate you and collect your co register your songs with collection societies that handle mechanicals um, outside of the U.S. And, and for 
digital downloads, which is a, a big area for a lot of independent artists who, you know, you don't have to be selling millions of units to sell a couple thousand digital downloads outside of the U.S. And that money just sits there until you have a publisher on your behalf go and get that money for you. Uh, it does not flow back to the U.S. unless you are on the licensing grid. So, you know, one of the things that we found is that there are tens of thousands of artists selling, you know, a couple of hundreds of pieces in it. You know, 8%, 9%, 10% of the wholesale price, depending on the territory, it actually amounts to a decent amount of money and oftentimes way more than what we charge per month. So, um, you know, as I said, we only launched the service in January publicly, but are already seeing some pretty significant results for our clients. So in the meantime, Justin also has to listen to music, go to the studio. <laughs> You know, it's the interesting thing about publishers. I mean, I don't think any of us really decided, you know, this is going to be really fun. We're going to learn about how GEMA works in Germany, and we'll have to learn how to read German to, like, figure out how to get paid. And you know, I think we all thought, wow, we're going to be working with songwriters, listening to demos, going I, pitching I up thought, bars. I thought I would just be listening to music. That's why I got into the music business. But as it yeah, turns out, I'm reading a lot of contracts. Yeah, become a, a little bit of a lawyer, too. I thought BMI had a plane until I was there about a year. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong letter, right? Jeez. Right. The EMI, not BMI. That was Right. EMI. Right. <laughs> so you know we're gonna we're gonna take questions and in, in like sorry about um, that. Just had a, a final question, and this is really more for I guess it'd be more for John, uh, not being associated with a record label. I know downtown publishing signs writers that are not necessarily on downtown music. But have you seen a competitive disadvantage in the 360 world where you know Sony Music wants you to sign the public or the, the artist to sign publishing with Sony ATV, Warner Chapel, and Warner Brothers? Are you seeing that, or is it you more over? I would say four, three or four years ago, three years whatever it was, three years ago when it first started, that was something that bothered me mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit. And then, you know, we see a mix now. We see uh, folks say, you know, we know you, we like you, we'd like to do a publishing deal before we do our record deal because mm -hmm. we know if we do a record deal, they're going to take part of our publishing. But if yeah. we have a publishing deal, they won't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or they'll take a lesser piece of it or, you know, something yeah. to that effect. Um, so that's been an interesting dynamic. Uh, the other w element of it is in in – there's there's honesty among really among the labels on this. They'll say, we're not publishers, you know, mm -hmm. we're a record company. We we so their agreements have morphed. I'm sure you've seen this, Dave. Where now the agreements, not all the time, but a lot of them will just say, okay, we have a passive participation versus owning the publishing, mm -hmm. so that they're not kind of getting wrapped up in that. And that's fine by us. I mean, we account for passive participants all the time. Right. So right. It's, so you'll account directly. Yeah. You don't mind doing that? No, we'll count to them. I mean, we collect, you know, we collect whatever it is, and if we have, you know, we have, as our writer has to pay part of that to them, then we'll pay it over to them. But, you know, but we're don't, spending don't the other way them. back on them, which is interesting, you know, which has kind of really caught a lot of people off guard because the investment, and Justin has the same thing, the investment that we're making in the writers, oftentimes who are artists, the incremental difference for them to actually make a record, get with our songwriters and get with our producers is not that much money relative to the advance we've already given them in a lot of cases. Um, and so what we're doing is actually going the other direction now. I mean, not in all cases, certainly, but in a lot of cases, we're actually signing people up to production and artist deals. Um, and a lot of them like it because our deal, we tend to be a lot more open about it. Um, we don't have it's ironic in a way you think if you had a total set path and way you're going to go down doing it that'd be better we have bug digital we distribute to 60 different services 60 plus different services 15,000 masters but it's been an interesting kind of turn on that because we'll turn a lot of that back to the artist uh, as far as control and 
one of the earlier panels, I was saying we don't do we won't do anything with anybody who's not fully invested in being involved in their business, all the marketing, everything else that they had to be. It's not going to be a passive program, hmm. and we're just actually moving our space, our offices in L.A. Um, to a twenty thousand square foot space, three and a half thousand, which is studios. We've built three, four production rooms and uh, two control rooms in that space specifically for this purpose. Our writers come in, they can now create, we put them with the producer, and we hope that we'll have you know, finished masters within a fairly short time frame. Right. Yeah, I think just to tack on to that, I think that's another thing. And, and um, when I first spoke to Brian about, you know, hey, putting this publishing panel together, uh, I was amped to see that there's not one but two but three publishing panels here at, at SF Music Tech. I think that one of the things that gets lost on a lot of folks is the role that um, publishers oftentimes play. Not all publishers, but but many publishers do play uh, in the development of, of this music. And it's oftentimes lost because everyone's focused on trying to get as you know broad a rights package as possible from us and uh, on the easiest least expensive terms so uh, they, they often put all that behind and you know there's a tremendous investment you know we have a studios downtown as well and you know just the cost of putting that in the cost of creating this music that people then go and build huge businesses on the back of um, is, is, is oftentimes lost and I think it's a really important point I would say that I mean just to give you guys numbers because I think it's kind of interesting I'd say we're usually in on a rider uh, we plan for a new writer to be with us for at least two years before they have any release action, and we're probably usually in on them somewhere between 150 and 250 for a writer who we just think is really good and, and but doesn't necessarily have a song even with anybody yet. Um, and so, if you kind of put that in context of the investments that are being made on the technology side, you can imagine it gets expensive uh, after a while. So. To keep that cycle going, we can argue whether it's smart or not smart or whatever it might be, but to keep that cycle going, it costs money. Well, uh, we're at the question time. Um, Michael? <laughs> Do we have any microphone? <laughs> Thank you. Well, I've really enjoyed the panel. I think that publishing is uh, not as well understood as it should be, given how much money it generates every year for songwriters and publishers. Um, and actually, that's my question. I'm an entertainment lawyer and a music business educator. And <clears throat> I've been observing that the sale of downloads has sort of tapered off and the streaming, on-demand streaming, has picked up. <clears throat> but the royalties is my observation that the interactive mechanicals that uh, uh, on-demand streamers pay are, uh, tend to be rather uh, terrible, to, to put it uh, mildly. And basically, it's a compulsory license that was enacted into law as part of the DMCA. But uh, it requires sort of a complicated formula based upon the pool of money that the service has. And I just thought I'd ask John and uh, Justin to comment on what they're seeing as far as interactive mechanicals. And is there any sort of pressure to sort of revise the formula? Or is it just going to depend upon um, uh, the, the digital services becoming uh, much more uh, financially uh, popular before those royalties will actually go up? Well, I'll talk, speak as a publisher first, um, and then I'll speak as a board member of the NMPA. Um, the, from, a, from a publisher's perspective, it has not been um, near the I guess maybe the promise on some level that was made in the business model, and also the the understanding that you know decisions are made really under the CRBs more so than the DCMA. But uh, and so 
in that's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but you you learn essentially, right? And so that is something that is going to probably come up. Um, the money is not the same, and not only that, there's another issue, and this isn't quite exactly along this issue, but is that formula is complicated. Harry Fox organization can help anybody tell them exactly what that number should be, um, and most publishers can too, frankly. But it's complicated. But the but the other part about it is, with the performance societies too, the performance rate in certain cases hasn't been set, and. What's happened then is some of the some of these services are actually holding the mechanicals back, even though there's a minimum, holding those mechanicals back, saying, and this is years. I mean, this is you know three, four, five years, holding those back, saying, well, we don't know what that rate's going to be yet because we don't know what the performance rate because in cer certain cases for those two pieces are tied together as mechanical and a performance linked in there, and so we don't exactly even know what the real number is. Now we are getting paid from a lot of organizations. That's true, but. Um, on a, if we were 100% of that, we would have a better gauge of whether it's a replacement or if it's just lower, not on, on rate, but on, on a one-to-one -one basis. But we just don't really know that yet. And then from an MPA perspective, there is a new rate board, copyright rate board that's coming up. Um, and we'll be starting for the new rates for 2012, I believe. No, 2013. That's a really a fairly lengthy process. Um, hopefully, that all the parties will come together and 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 find a amicable solution to you know for the benefit of everybody. You know, there's a crazy component to that one in that um, this is where they say just make it a bundle. And in that case, the way the bundle ended up getting expressed was it was a it was an all-in number. The all-in number, in in theory, may have worked, but prob the problem was is that there were certain other issues behind the all-in number right. that didn't close it out. And then the market being the market said, oh, this is terrific. I can drive a truck through this thing now. I'm going to totally take this and jam these guys with this all-in number, and I'm going to pit publishers against societies and writers against publishers and publishers against writers and try to use it to disrupt the marketplace and then create such a, a conundrum that um, instead of 10.5, why don't we just settle this whole thing for seven and call it over? So unfortunately, the simplicity of the bundle doesn't always end up that way because um, it's just not that simple. No, I mean I have more things to make it more complicated, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Hi, great. Thanks. Um, so Debbie Newman, um, consultant, attorney, pundit, whatever. Um, I've been uh, oh, in the last week. EMI's made this announcement about their pulling the. Um, April catalog uh, away from ASCAP for digital performance rights, which they're bundling uh, with other rights. And um, from the standpoint of a, of a service, digital music service, who, you know, in terms of the least amount of friction possible to have to get uh, certainly licenses that are compulsory licenses through the PROs, to now have to go to a publisher directly uh, to license, and then potentially other major publishers may make that same kind of decision, or they could pull the Blackwood catalog out of BMI or whatever. So <coughs> what does that do from the licensing standpoint? Um, what are the implications of that for the PROs? 
What does that do for digital music services that now have to go to more licenses? And actually, as a corollary to the comment about the uh, Harry Fox, uh, the rate with the subscription services, if you're actually factoring in the PROs from that 10.5%, now you've got not just HBO, I mean, not just ASCAP and BMI and CSAC, but now EMI and who knows who else wants to pull those rights back. What happens in, in this scenario? Well, you know, it's an interesting, uh, I'm just going to, because it's such a, the question that Debbie just asked is a really like easy one really a really <laughs> super easy. A really easy one to like to pass off because it's so I mean it's it's, it's such a like a, a technical point but I'm just going to summarize it really quickly okay there's a bundle of rights right our, our usual for music publishing is mechanicals when you sell a record performance when they're publicly played synchronization when it's used with the visual motion image and a bunch of others including print and lyrics and others so we're talking about the performance of public. So historically, everybody's gone through three American societies, uh, CSAC, which is a wholly private, um, BMI and ASCAP. And what happened, or what was announced, I should say, was that EMI pulled their publishing rights, just the part related to digital, not to, um, what would you call it, to... Uh, Traditional, well, media, traditional media, airings in yeah. public places, things like that, um, away. And they're, I don't want to speak for them, but they're saying that this is going to make it easier for everybody, including, uh, yeah. well, techno. Oh, well, I think I think what's interesting about it is they may be, this issue I just said before, I think that this is part of the reason that they're saying, you know what, if I just license all, I can get paid now for it versus all this money sitting outside. And so I, I, I think the part of it's a frustration. Um, part of it's just an efficiency from them. And I wouldn't be surprised if you saw others do it, not just majors. Uh, here's why I don't think so, okay, is because they're usually already going to get some form of a license already in, in some format uh, from one place, either directly from them or from Fox in certain cases. And I think the concept here is that, that you're going to actually be able to bundle everything somebody may want um, and, it may, and not just the individual pieces. Um, it's... Look, I mean, again, we share the same frustration as whenever we try to find somebody on the synchronization side or when we want to do something with somebody, it's it's not perfect. Um, there are serial legislation, not to get real detailed again, but serial legislation that was up three years ago, I think, which would allow for orphan works, which essentially would bundle everything together and allow there to be 100% licensing. That will come back up too in the next couple of years. So we kind of got to be a little forward thinking, I think. So um, I saw, on the, uh, and I was I pitched a ride on the EMI plane on the way out here this morning, and uh, <laughs> our antitrust counsel was on the wing wagging his finger at me. Um, this is I would love to talk about this, and at some point we will, but right now it's it's an ASCAP issue. So I'll and just in case he's in this room somewhere under a chair, <coughs> you can all be a witness that I didn't I didn't speak up. How's everyone doing? Um, what do you got? I'm Eric Mendelson. I know both of you guys. How's it going? Um, what do you guys use when? What, what criteria do you guys use when you're valuing acquiring someone's full catalog, 100% um, of the copyright? Is there what, what is there is there a mathematical equation? Is it 10 to 15%, 8 to 12? And what do you guys? Simple. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's not simple. I should say, but <laughs> it's we're just uh, it's discounted. It's a, it's it's discounted cash flows. We look and see what the copyrights do. We make a prediction on what they'll do in the future. And then you throw that out the window and you just see what the hell you can figure out. Because you can use all the logic you want, but in the middle of the business we're in right now with who knows how a particular stream is going to act or if Congress is going to say, you know what, 
do it all for free. I mean, it's frankly, it's devalued all the copyright holders and the artists uh, and songwriters catalogs. It's just so volatile that any bet you make has to be at such a depressed price to mitigate your risk. Um, older copyrights, I mean, on a simple basis, older copyrights, 15 years or older, are much more predictable and you can get a sense mm -hmm. for it. But, um, but anything in the last 15 years is very difficult. Yeah, but we I, do a lot of it. I would add that you know, one of the other things that we look at very closely is, um, you know, just the licensing history. You know, where where we can add value and see if there's an if we think there's a, a big upshot. You know, um, there are catalogs out there that uh, were recently for sale that were highly exploited over the past four or five years by the prior publisher, um, which makes acquire which makes the potential upside that we could bring to the catalog um, less because of just how widely used uh, they were over the previous four or five years. Um, versus catalogs where the writers are interested in having their music exploited, uh, but either due to just creative differences or whatever, it hadn't happened previously, or there just wasn't a proactive publisher working previously. So we do take that into consideration as well, and those are case by case, you know. Okay. What's the fourth road back? Yeah. Right. Um, right turn. Yeah. I have a question for uh, Justin about your. Um, subscription-based model and how it's been compared to the traditional percentage model. Um, has it been like a lot lower risk in terms of signing on new clients and is it sustainable? Well, the, there's, there's, the risk is the cost that uh, we've spent developing this platform, which, um, you know, first and foremost for us is creating it as an educational platform. You know, I mean, one of the things I say is, you know, everyone should check it out just to learn about music publishing. And what we're trying to do with Songtrust is um, educate the community of songwriters and artists about uh, their rights. And one of the things we're actually going to be rolling out in a few weeks is like how to create your own song trust and do it yourself. And we encourage people who think they can to go ahead and do it. Um, but uh, oftentimes when you see what goes into being a music publisher and, and, and being self-published, truly self-published, um, you realize that the, the cost um, of, of bringing us on board to do it on your behalf uh, makes sense. I, I very much believe in the model. So. <laughs> so anybody have, you want to do one more? All right, one more question. <laughs> oh, that's all the questions. Okay. Uh -oh. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Richard. Yeah. Richard Conlon, um, BMI acquired Blue Arrow technology, the you know, fingerprint identification, music identification. Uh, is it just going to use it for its own purposes, or is it going to be somehow incorporated so that all the societies can have real-time, you know, fingerprint sort of performance uh, uh, counting? Uh, you know, so what's the future of it as far as BMI is concerned? It's um, the, the, the first goal for, for the, the, the recognition technology is to serve the mothership, to be able to identify um, feature, but, but very importantly, identify short use as an audiovisual product, which it's learning to do now. It has some passive revenue streams already built into it because it's the engine that drives the Shazam um, app. So it's, it, is, it basically is the guts of Shazam that we bought from Shazam. So um, it really is uh, an asset that we're deploying against the core business and really looking to make it serve uses that are difficult and expensive to get. And then also look, if you can, around the edges, defray costs by finding some passive revenue. Uh, we're doing that as well. I, did, I just want to say one thing. Thanks, everybody, um, A, for coming to the panel, but B, especially the technology community. I know it's tough. We want to help. Um, but we get it. I mean, just as Justin and I said, I think probably you know we both have a great understanding that that community is really helping push um, music and the survival and health of music. 
um, just help us. That's all we ask for, both on a creative basis, and let's set some level of uh, normalcy when it comes to licensing, because um, it's going to benefit everybody at the end of the day. And uh, we'll also, I think, at the you know, the reason we're all here, I think, is because we love music. So, thanks, guys, very much. It's been great to have you.